0: Welcome to the Gateway Scottsdale audio podcast. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through his word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.gatewayscottsdale.tv. Now, let's tune in for this week's message.
1: As we start our newest series, which is Fight for Family, I'm going to see it on the screen, um, our desire, more than anything, and as a family life director here, my desire is f- to equip us to strengthen our families. If you don't know it, there is a war on the family in our culture today. And there is a war on not only just your family that you live in right now, but the legacy that your family will leave. And our desire is to strengthen families from the inside out, and so that this house would be a house of refuge with built on pillars of strong families, and in order for that to happen, we have to step out of a passive role and into a posture of almost like a fighter. Yes, God's won the victory, but it's our job to enforce the victory that he's won, and so we want to equip you with tools and, and really what you need to walk out and to fight for your family and for the legacy that your family will leave. Whether you're single and hoping to start a family, whether you're on the seasoned end of life and you've raised a family, our desire is that God would strengthen you where you're at. And so we're bringing in the next few weeks people that can speak to that and equip you with tools. And so this week, I am so excited about the gift that we have. We have Dr. Tim Kimmel. Who's here and he's founded Family Matters Ministries for decades, has been traveling throughout the nation, throughout the world, writing bestseller books, grace-based parenting, grace-filled marriage, things that will equip you and give you practical tools that you need to walk this out, to have that posture, to go to battle for your family and what God wants to do for you. So will you join me in welcoming Dr. Tim Kimmel?
0: Thank you. Thank you. Neal. You know, when you have a theme like fighting for your family, I think most people hear the word fighting and say, well, wait a minute, that's, a, that's kind of a rough word there. I'm not too into fighting. Well, you know, I think most people shouldn't be into fighting much. Fighting requires risk. Usually you get hurt even if you win. And so most people avoid fights. Then there are some people that just go looking for fights. They can't wait for the next one. They're usually got a lot of issues they're processing and, and uh, don't usually live long. Or if they do, they don't have much of a life to speak for. it. And so I can understand the the desire to want to avoid something as hard as a fight. And yet there's some times where some things come down where you got to fight. Because if you don't fight, some really people you love, some really important people are going to go down. We have have an enemy that does not want the the family to flourish. He declared war on it. In the third chapter of Genesis, the first chapter, we, we see God creating uh, the, the universe, and then he puts his crowning achievement there, a man and a woman, and he marries them. He gives, in, in chapter 2, the same creation story, but from on the other side of the street, gives you another perspective on it. He ends it up, for this cause, a man to leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, become one flesh. Who's watching this the whole time? Satan is. He says, I see your plan. It's so obvious. You're banking everything on the family, on the marriage. I'm coming after it. And he put his red dot right on him. And he took down Adam and Eve so fast. The devastation to God's creative plan for passing his love and mercy down from one generation to the other was so severe that their firstborn child killed their secondborn child. But God's plan didn't change. It's still, he's still banking it on the family. All, there's a lot of other things that God uses, but nothing like the family to transfer his heart. And so we, gotta be, we can't be naive about this, and we cannot afford to be passive. Passivity is a death knell to godly families. And so I'm, I'm grateful that this church is willing to focus in on this and help us get ahead on it. Because I'm convinced that strong churches don't make strong families. Strong families make strong churches. And the people that are running this church understand that. (sighs) I was in high school. I met a girl. She was so pretty and smart and and, and clever. And I was just, I fell for her big time. It took me five years to convince her of all the potential I had deeply embedded in me. (laughs) But we got married. I brought her with me today, Darcy. Come on, stand up and say hi. There you go. There you go married, And in August, next month, we'll celebrate 45 years of marriage. Yeah. <laughs> Along the way, though, we found out, well, we're going to have kids. Like a lot of married couples, we're going to make a family. I'm, I'm going to have them show a picture of the family, and, but it's not so you meet our family. Uh, if you'll just put that picture up. Here's the point I want to make. See, we had ended up with four kids. They married four wonderful people. They're starting to have grandkids. We have six and counting. But I can remember like yesterday when it was just she and I in that picture. It was just the two of us. We had no idea that God was going to, had these, these kids to it, these, these in-laws, these grandchildren. But I'll tell you what. The kind of marriage you have, the kind of family you have, the kind of priorities you have determine whether those smiles on that face are authentic. Or Photoshopped, and that's why we need to be deliberate about this. Yeah, you put that down now. Thanks. You see, when we found out we were going to be parents, we read the standard books that were out there at that time, there weren't nearly as many as there are now about Christian parenting, and, and we got some help from them. But we saw that they kind of, they kind of bolstered the two basic, um, the two basic, the standard ways that Christian parents tend to parent and I'm not saying any of you all do but but as I you know I've been working on this a long time I'm a gray haired man I've been around a while and and I saw that the Christian community tended to fall into one of two camps when it comes to parenting their kids the first camp is uh, what I would call fear-based parenting they're scared they see what's out there this toxic world a, a, a culture that is so antagonistic to all the values we hold a, 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 a culture that does not embrace absolute morality doesn't assume uh, a, a sovereign God. Uh, they mock that. And then, and, and then on top of that, that we bring some we bring some rough stuff to the table. Ourself, we all have internal issues. We have our, our little things that can hold us back we might not have come we didn't get maybe didn't get the best launch pad in the family of origin or maybe we did but we still just feel overwhelmed here's the problem though with fear-based parenting although it's very common in the christian movement if we're followers of jesus we should be the last people afraid of just about anything it's just so ironic that we would have a fear-based pattern within a christian community when we should be the last people afraid of anything the only thing we're supposed to be afraid of are the things God built in us to be afraid of. I'm afraid of crossing the 101 on one on foot <laughs> at any time of the day. That's a good fear. God put it there to keep me alive. But when I would see Christian families and they're afraid of the internet, and they're afraid of hip-hop music, and they're afraid of public schools, they're afraid of cohabitating neighbors, they're afraid of whatever, and they hunker down and cloister, and I'm thinking, what, what? That doesn't make any sense. Because if we're trying to raise kids that have a confidence in an almighty God, who's sitting on a throne and has everything under control, it's kind of hard to do it when they see us scared. And, and I want to be, I want to, I, want to, and I, I understand the reasons why people are afraid. There's some nasty stuff out there. But you know, when Jesus gave the revelation to the apostle John, the last book of the Bible, he, he appeared to him and he said, okay, write this down. And he gave... He gave himself, he started out with his own nickname. He gave himself in the Bible. He says, write this down. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And then he went on to give the revelation. Now, the Alpha and Omega was like saying, I'm the A and the Z. Because that was the first and last letters of the Greek language that he was using there. It's like, here's what he was saying. Write this down. I'm the God who had the first word. And I'm the one who's going to have the last one. And then he gives the revelation. And you you get to see how the whole, you get to see, read the last chapter of, Civilization, we win. We win. Do you know that more than if you categorize all the things in the Bible, a piece of advice God gave, you know what he said more than anything else in the Bible? Don't be afraid. So fear-based parenting doesn't lend itself to raising strong, confident kids. And the other side is performance-based parenting. And I can understand that too. You know, what does a nice Christian family look like? What are nice Christian kids, how they act, how they dress, what kind of music do they listen to? Who do they hang out with? And so we get them in their little, little uh, thing that we've imposed on them, and then we follow them around with our evangelical report card and grade them. Once again, a dead on arrival strategy. For one thing, is that how God deals with you and me? Is he following us around with a report card? No. He paid a, a price for us on the cross. He gave, we, we sang about it. He gave us, we, we had these wicked hearts. He took his... He gave us a heart transplant. He sees us through his love and mercy. So, with all that in mind, we thought, well, we need help. And and we just wanted a plan for parenting that we felt would reflect God's heart. Darcy's the brain's the operation. And she made an observation, followed by a question, that changed everything for us. Said, well, think about this, Tim. God's a parent. The number one metaphor of God in the Bible is a parental one. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, Pray our Father who art in heaven. We're his children. Here's the question. I wonder if we could study him, look at the Bible through the lens of his role as a parent with his children and see if there's any patterns to what he's doing. If we could put any handles on it. And we didn't have to confine our study to those handful of passages in the bible about parent child relationship we had the whole grand narrative from page one to the end because he's always interacting and when we did it we felt not only did god leave a plan for parenting he didn't hide it it's been on the surface all along and we found there was one word that i thought captured we just felt captured the whole heart of it and that's his grace and that's and we, we put together what we kind of came up with this concept of grace-based parenting uh uh the, the, in fact, we could distill it down to a napkin. If you want to put that up there. Uh, we, we saw that God's grace comes at us at like four levels. He meets our strong needs at the bottom there for, secure, uh, for, for security, significance, and strength. He sets our hearts free in that second level. On the third level, he builds our, our character muscles. Faith, integrity, poise, discipline, endurance, and courage. On that roof level, he aims us at something bigger and better than here now in ourselves. True Greatness. And with those wonderful qualities of a humble heart, a grateful heart, a generous heart, a service heart. That's how he's dealing with us. And we thought, why don't we just do that with our kids? We're supposed to be imitators of him. And all grace-based parenting is treating your kids the way God treats you. And so in doing that, uh, it, it just set us free. And so what I'd like to do is, is first of all, I, I'd like to step back and let's let's just define grace. Grace is giving people giving somebody something they desperately need but don't necessarily deserve. That's what grace is. Grace is um, it's known for its kindness, its mercy, its forgiveness, its patience. It, it sees value, intrinsic value in somebody in spite of their behavior. It desires their best. It brings the best out of them. Here's what grace doesn't do. It doesn't yell at people. It doesn't insult them doesn't swear at them, doesn't put them down, it doesn't uh, keep score and give affection based on whether you earn a, you deserve it or not. See, God doesn't deal with us that way. Why, why would we deal with each other any differently in our, with our kids, our spouse, our friends? And that, that, that napkin there, that, that works for parent-child relationships, husband-wife relationships, friend-to-friend relationships. But I want to dial in on just the parent-child, because that's what they're talking about here. And even whether, whether you you're have a family or not, well, trust me, what you're going to learn here is cross the board uh, if it's in any relationship. And I want to first start by kind of talking about, giving you an analogy of what happens when grace isn't in place. And I can use our setting right here. Because, see, as Christians, what we tend to do is we, we tend to... We tend to uh, focus in on the truth side of the equation and what, uh, what, what, how we should behave, right? And we want to make sure the Bible's right and all that stuff. So let's use our setting here. Since you arrived here at church this morning, would you say gateway, in spite of being under construction, has, re- has presented itself very well to you? Yeah. I mean, it, it, if, if nothing changes, it's still a great look at church and how you all do it, and everybody's feeling nice. Have the, have the worship team been theologically correct in the passionate songs they had us sing for them? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, although I haven't unpacked the scripture, I'm about to. Uh, would you say so far I, I've been theologically accurate in my framing this thing? Do you think within the way the Bible's supposed to be? Have I got the truth story right? Have we got the truth right? Are we getting the story right? The answer is yes. But what if it was 25 degrees in this room the whole time? And you're dressed just like you are right now. You see, it wouldn't matter how right we're getting it. You wouldn't be able to appreciate it because you're so cold. And that's what happens when we have homes that are we're trying to be biblically right and behave right and do everything right, except the the the, the gracious heart of God isn't setting the temperature. See, in John 1 14, it says Jesus was filled with grace and truth. It wasn't 50 50. It wasn't 75, 25, or shifting, it was 100, 100. And so we not only want to have the truth story right, but the grace. I like to put it this. We want to have families that are guided by God's truth, all the while tempered by his grace. And it's that grace in place and that power and presence of Christ working through us that I think is the best defense against all the things that are trying to take us down. With that in mind, I want to show you four freedoms that Jesus gives us that we can turn around and give to each other. And the first freedom is grace filled families and grace based families give the people they love the freedom to be different. To be different. Now, that sounds like a nice, harmless word. Let me give you some synonyms so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Give them the freedom to be weird, strange, goofy, bizarre, quirky. Grace-based homes not only have room for those kind of kids, they celebrate them. Fear-based families do not have room for them. Performance-based families certainly do not have room for those kind of kids. But grace-based families do. And one of the reasons why performance-based and fear-based don't have room for them is because those kind of kids annoy us. And they embarrass us sometimes. And when, when somebody annoys us or embarrasses us, we want to correct them by framing whatever their behavior is in right and wrong things. And many times, it's not that they're doing anything wrong. They're just weird. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about them clearly doing things the Bible says are wrong. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about a lot of things that kids do that's just, just so different the way we would do it, the way we would pr- prefer them doing it. We just we stop it. You're just driving me nuts, and you're evil. God can't be pleased with you. (laughs) Jesus is mad now. You have a little boy. You send him in the backyard to play. He'll do a headbutt right into a tree. You think, what is wrong with you? He's a little boy. They have scar tissue over their foreheads. for That's little boy stuff. You have a little girl. She's playing by herself. She is never alone. Ever. Always talking to somebody. Imaginary friend. They're there. They're not things, they're people, they have names. You give her a pile of rocks, she'll make a family. And she'll, here's the big dude here, his name's, his, this dad's name, his name's Cleveland, he's a, he's a big, here's mom. You give her Barbie dolls, she'll put them in a half circle, play the view. And they'll start arguing with each other. Her little brother comes in, sees a Barbie doll, well you pick it up, bite the head off, throw it like a grenade, make it explode. They're weird. But they're kids. Then they become teenagers, and boy, you know, they start taking on a mind of their own. (laughs) You know, kids, teenagers have—you know—they're really actually starting their—they're starting their launch. They're starting to move away from us and starting to move towards independence. That's part of the deal. And the way they dress, uh, you know, the, some of the things they get into, it, 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 it freaks parents out. Uh, right now, the hairstyles are pretty, pretty tame and under control. But, but, you know, the weird stuff cycles through. I, I grew up in the teenage years right in the middle of it. And I've lived through several of them. And it's amazing how oftentimes parents use that as a, a major line of warfare. We're going to draw the line to fight over this stuff. They think it just doesn't represent Jesus and, and so be evil. Uh, we have four kids. Our youngest boy is a boy named Colt. He grew up to be a Phoenix firefighter. But he was a, when he was going into the eighth grade, he was very tall for his age, and he said to me, Dad, can I grow my hair long? I said, man, give it your best shot. You're going to have to grow it a long time before it's as long as mine was when I was in the eighth grade. <laughs> and he grew it out, and it looked so nice. Well, I was speaking at a... It was in, uh, in the springtime. I was speaking in a church in Miami, Florida, in Miami Beach area. I was actually, church was over. I was in a taxi going to the airport when my phone went off, and it was cold. Dad, spring break. I know. We're going to have a lot of fun. Dad, I was wondering, can I have a mohawk? What? Can I have a mohawk? I thought about that a while. I thought, you know what? That would be fun. Tell you what, I'll be home tonight around 7. I'm going to cut you a great mohawk. You can have it all week. But we're going to have to buzz it off on Saturday because your, your school doesn't allow mohawks. Great. So I hung up. He hung up. Now, you got to know, I was factoring in something. I was factoring in church. And at that time, we, we go to Scottsdale Bible Church. And at that time, Scottsdale Bible had two services in the evening that replicated the services in the morning. The exact same ones in the morning, except all the children and youth ministries were in the evening. So all the parents and families were coming at night, and the morning was more for the older people and the guests. Well, I knew he'd be at church. He's home by seven. I thought, great. No, no church. Well, uh, our daughter Shiloh was listening to this conversation when he hung up. She said, "What did Dad say?" He said, "I could have one. He's going to cut it for me when he gets home." She said, "I know how to cut one of those." <laughs> they got out the scissors, the clippers. And they, she cut him a mohawk. Remember, his hair was very long. They took Elmer's glue, and they glued that sucker up. And he went to church. And I'm sure he sucked the oxygen out of a lot of people. And, and, and a lot of folks, what happened to security here? And, and, and the older women were going through their purse, just, you know, just shoveling every medication they could find. And I'm sure some people know, isn't that the son of the guy that writes the books about parenting, I'm sure? <laughs> but anyway, in between the two services, everybody kind of mingles out in this big atrium area outside. And our senior pastor at the time was a guy named Daryl, and he was out there talking to some people when Colt went across campus. And he looked over and he said, Colt Kimmel, Colt Kimmel, is that you? Get over here. He came over to him, and he had to look up to him because he's tall. And he looked at him, that's the greatest mohawk I've ever seen. That's incredible. How do you... How do you get it to stay up like that? Glue. And then, you know, anybody says, I wish I had a camera to take a picture of me and Colt Kimmel with his mo- That's the best mohawk I've ever seen. I tell you the story because I want to make this point. It, it, it was very important for Darcy and I that we took our children to a grace based church. We wanted to take our children to a church where the people running it know what matters and what doesn't matter. Man looks on the outside. God looks on the heart. This kid had a wonderful heart. He loved the Lord. He was, he was a great son. He was a great sibling. He loved his friend. He worked hard at school. He, good, he just wanted a mohawk. Now he said, "No, wait a minute, Tim. Don't you think sometimes the way kids are uh, they're, they're presenting on the outside that might show that they're they're in a free fall on the inside and, and showing a real Yeah, sometimes that's obviously true. My question would, to you would be: does it make any sense to attack the outside? The outside's a symptom. Of the free fall, fix the heart. The outside will take care of itself. If the heart's fine, don't worry about the outside. See, that's how grace comes to our rescue. Because you see, the world wants to come at us and make, make these things just uh, uh, lines of battle where we end up shoving wedges between our hearts and our kids and their hearts and God. It doesn't need to be done. I love the way Paul weighed in on this. In Romans chapter 15, he was bringing this incredible book that he wrote to a conclusion, he, he summarizes and thinking, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord, in, in, in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Therefore, accept one another as Christ has accepted you for the glory of God. And see, some of these things that are quirky little nuances that drive us nuts, God hardwired them into these people. And so when we insult those things, we're insulting God. There's a way we can all uh, uh, make the most of these things and enjoy the ride and the process. Let me, the bottom line on there is grace, grace-based families allow the children the freedom to be different. Secondly, grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable. Meaning, they get to live in a home where they don't have to wear masks over their heart. They can verbalize their doubts and their fears and the fragile features of their heart without fear of being attacked. I was going into the ninth grade, big high school in Maryland, Annapolis High School in the capital city of Annapolis. And I was very excited about going to high school because, well, the rock and roll was louder, the girls were prettier, and there were more of them. And I was gonna play football for their famous coach. I was very excited about it. But That summer, in between my 8th and ninth year, the Board of Education sent several hundred of us incoming freshmen letters saying that because of overcrowded conditions, we were being annexed to an elementary school in downtown Annapolis. Instead of going to the big school, we're back in elementary school. A lot of trade-offs. The biggest one was in the area of phys ed, because normally you put on a phys ed outfit and you go out and play, and it's a very humid area, so you sweat a lot, no problem, you take a shower, put your school clothes back on. We didn't have that option. We had to do everything in our school clothes. There was a gymnasium on the second floor of a building uh, a block from the, this elementary school, and that's where we would do phys ed in the winter time. I went up the stairs and in there one winter morning for my phys ed class, and I got very excited as soon as I walked in because there was a trampoline open in the middle of the gym. And I had never jumped on one before. They weren't pieces of equipment in backyards back then. I got very excited. Well, we all gathered there, and then the, the, the PE coach came out, and we were all around the thing, and he kind of looked around at everybody, he came back to me, he said, Kimmel, take off your shoes, leave on your socks, climb up here, follow my instructions. So I pulled my shoes off and started to climb up, but as I did, I realized I had holes in both of my socks. And one of my friends thought everybody should notice this. <laughs> and oh, look at Tim's toes, isn't this sad? We need to take up a collection, buy Tim some real socks. And it was kind of his subtle way of putting my family down and our economics. And by the way, we were on the bottom scale of the middle class. We paid our bills on time. We didn't miss a meal. Went by the mantra, get as much mileage out of your clothing as you can. And up to that point, I thought that was a good idea. Until I was up there and I was jumping, doing exactly what he was telling me to do. But all I could think about were my toes sticking out. It just became a real embarrassing moment for me. If that were to happen to me now, I could care less what people think. But when you're in that quarter of time, that 14, 15, 16, 17, that's the time when kids are unusually self-conscious. Well, I finished my demo. I stood down, and the other guys are jumping. I'm thinking, I'm going to go home. I'm going to get out my sock drawer. I'm going to darn every pair of socks. I will never let this happen to me again. When the class was over, uh, the bell rang. The the coach dismissed us all. He took off. I went and got on my shoes, got my books, got my coat on. I went out the side door, and I got down the bottom of the stairs when I hear my name. Kimmel, wait up. It was that coach. Came down, he pulled me aside He said, Hey, Tim, I want to tell you why I called on you to do the demonstration. You're the most agile student in my class. And then he reached out, untied his tennis shoe, pulled it off. He had a big old hole in his sock. (laughs) He says, You know, us agile guys are tough on socks. (laughs) Go to class. So I'm walking over to class, and the whole way I'm thinking, What's Agile. Because I never heard a word. I had no clue what he just said to me. But I was going to an English class, and they had big, big dictionaries on their own. They loved it when you actually looked up a word without a gun held to your head. And I went over, and I looked up agile. I read for the first time in my life that I could do with speed, ease, elegance, and liveliness. And I secondly learned that I was mentally alert and quick-witted. No one had ever told me that before. I wrote it down. I memorized it. And I did a 180 degree turn. Two major areas of my life academics and athletics. In fact, a couple of weeks later, they had this of, who can do the most sit ups in the ninth grade? Now, these weren't the crunch things you do now. You can do millions of those. These are these things where you had to lay flat, somebody held down your feet, you couldn't bend your legs, you had to come all the way up, crossover. They don't even allow them in the school system anymore because of the lower back distress. But they didn't know that back then. So I decided I'm going to set that record. I thought it would be easier, but there was another guy that had it in mind to do that, too. And we just kept going. They let us keep going. We sat up through phys ed class, through English class, and through lunch. They were sending runners out. All They're, uh, they're up to 490-something, you know, whatever. And we just kept going and going. And I, and I did one more than him, and I won that contest. My stomach muscles hurt for days after that. <laughs> but I didn't care, because I was agile. <laughs> You know, it took a while to put the pieces together to figure out why that coach disappeared so quickly after class. He had to get to his little office just off the gym, get his shoe off, get the scissors out, cut the hole in his sock, put it back on a race and catch me. He didn't go around with holes in his socks. He's a PE coach. They give you shoes and socks, new stuff all the time as part of the deal. But he saw a vulnerable kid that needed help, and he touched his life with grace. Now listen, listen, Our children and grandchildren have these kind of moments all the time. Someone has described childhood as a 24-hour day, 7-day a week, 365-day-a-year battle to keep from being embarrassed. They need to have safe harbor. Somebody that's seeing a much bigger picture and doesn't marginalize them when they struggle. Paul had an issue that he took to God. Be very vulnerable with God about uh, this thorn in the flesh, he called it, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he asked God several times to take it away. Each time God said no. And then God finally said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected It's made perfect in your weakness. He says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. God's grace is one of the great gifts he gives us to work through the vulnerable issues of our life assuming that's center stage in our homes and and as a warning in colossians chapter 4 verse 6 it says let your conversation be always full of grace seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be different the freedom to be vulnerable thirdly grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be candid to be candid Notice I didn't say the freedom to be honest, because obviously we want to be honest, but the problem with bare-naked honesty can be cruel. Want proof of that? Just watch the Jerry Springer show. It depends on people telling you exactly what they think. Without any regard to how that impacts it. Candor is honesty with the best interest of the person on the receiving end of it in mind. And that's where grace comes to rescue. And, and, and our, our, our kids, we need to give people, uh, uh, the people we love, a respectful outlet for telling us what's on their heart, even if it's stuff we're not excited about hearing. They might be going through a faith crisis in their teenage years saying, sorry, Mom, Dad, I, I'm not buying that Jesus is the only way. And the Bible is the only authority. It's not a time to panic and hire somebody from Phoenix Seminary, some theologian, duct tape, duct, duct tape into your kid's face until the kid "Get No, no. Remain calm while your kid's faith is on trial. This time when they need to see the the adults in there confident about the, the, the authority of Scripture and the role of Christ in salvation and demonstrating that calm while their kids work through it. They also need to be able to tell us, have an outlet when we've let them down. Because unless you're a perfect parent, you're going to get it wrong sometimes. Paul, it, it, it's interesting. God is a perfect parent. He never gets it wrong, and yet he gives us an outlet to come to him when we're frustrated with him. Did you know that? In, in, in Hebrews chapter four, it says we don't have a high priest that doesn't understand what it's like to be in our skin, but was in all ways tempted like like we are yet without sin. And then he says, and look at this in, in verse 16, he says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that, look, we will find receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Sometime our time of need is frustration with God. My mom died a lot younger than I thought she should have. I was frustrated with God for a while. And he, he says in Hebrews, come to me, pour it out. I have a big chest. Now, I'm not gonna explain... Uh, life and death to you—you you wouldn't understand anyway. But I understand your pain. I hurt with you. I will walk with you. Our son Cody—he's our second-born. Once again, it was springtime. He was about 16 years old. He finished his homework. Is going to go to bed. He said, oh, Dad, I forgot to mention. I need you to sign me out of school tomorrow at noon. Really? Why? What's up? He said, "Oh, it's opening day of the Diamondbacks." And my friend steve got tickets right behind the dugout and invited me to go now the year before the arizona diamondbacks had beaten the yankees the new york yankees in the world series this is a big opening game but for some stupid reason i thought i should teach my son about personal responsibility i said cody you're a student you go to school at eight you get off at three you just can't take off because something fun's happening now, i know but Dad. I think they're going to have F-16s fly over. Well, that'd be nice. But, and then I went on, but it's like we have a job. You have a job, I have a job. There's all kinds of fun distractions, but we've got to stay there to quit in time. Dad, I think Randy Johnson's going to be in the mound. I came back to my lecture on personal responsibility. You can see him getting frustrated. He said, Dad, I think Alice Cooper's going to sing the national anthem. <laughs> but he was just getting so exasperated. And finally, he, he got quiet and he, he said, right, respectfully, he said, Dad, listen, I bring you home straight A's. All I've ever brought you home are straight A's. I can't bring you home any better grades than I'm bringing you. Now, you need to decide whether I can go to that game. It was like this gigantic divine arm came down out of the sky. <laughs> like, did one of these right in the top of my What is your problem? Sign the kid out. <laughs> are you nuts? And then on top of that, here's what's interesting. Those straight A's did not come from his father's side of the gene pool. They came from his mother's. I struggled for my B's, C's, and D's, and A's. (laughs) I felt you should have vowels and consonants on your report card. See, look, Dad. I think it's one of them find-a-word things. I see like five. Can you sign the bottom? I mean, this is so stupid. And on top of that, I would have never asked my father to sign me out. I'd have played hooky. I reached in my pocket, I took out two large bills, and I handed them to Cody. I said, Cody, make sure you buy the big hot dogs and the big drinks for you and Stephen. And Cody, please forgive me for being such a jerk. I'm so sorry. Now listen, as, 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 as people get older, especially when they move into the twilight eras of their life, it's not uncommon for the memories of youth to just fade, where you can't even remember hardly anything. And you know, this incident may be well may well be one that fades from Cody's memory someday. But had I I held my ground and refused to sign him out of school, he'd have never forgotten, to his last breath, what a bonehead he had for a father. We get it wrong sometimes. They need to have an outlet to talk with us. And, and, And here's the thing, they need to do it respectfully. We raise the odds that they will speak respectfully to us when they're frustrated with us if we speak respectfully to them when we're frustrated with them, when they get it wrong. You know how God does with us when he comes to us. He doesn't scream and yell and curse and swear and all that stuff with us. He deals with us as a loving father that's got the bubble in the middle, does, and we can do that with him. Grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be different, vulnerable, candid. Lastly, they give the people they love the freedom to make mistakes, to make mistakes. Another way of saying it, they give them the freedom to be imperfect. I'm not saying that we're encouraging them to be wrong. Not, that's not it. It's just that we know they're going to struggle. We know that. And we don't make that any kind of a issue of whether they get their love, our, our love from them. You see, God does not connect his love to us based on our behavior, because if he did, we'd be dead. The wages of sin is death. He's loving us out of his heart of grace, not out of our behavior. Now, does he withhold his blessing? Sure, just like a parent would with the whole blessing to a kid, it, it gets out of line. Of course we do, but not love. And, and, and God's, God, God can help us there. You know, there's a verse I want to share that kind of helps on both of these things. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Where did I get these four freedoms from? I got them from how Jesus deals with you and me. He gives us the freedom to be different and vulnerable and candid and make mistakes. And he he just wants us to do the same with him, but we can't do it on our own. The only way this is really going to happen is not when we're trying to do grace on our power, but when we let God take his rightful place in our life. And and he's, he's in the driver's seat, and his grace just comes through us. It's hard to give what you haven't first received. If you're here and you've never received this gracious gift from God that sets you free from your sin and gives you heart connection to Him and eternal life, afterwards there's going to be some people who you can come up and talk with. I hope you do. I want to close with this last story. And that is a reminder to us all that the window of opportunity to, to touch our kids' lives with God's grace is not open as long as we think it is. I was reminded of this one Saturday morning, when I was awakened before dawn by our daughter Shiloh, she was about five years old at the time, and she shook me awake, Dad, Dad, it's time to go out on our date. I promised her the night before I'd take her out on a breakfast date, and she'd gotten up, got ready, and, and I looked at the closet, honey, it's still dark out, but Daddy, I, I've picked this outfit out for you. I did my hair for you, and she looked so cute there. I said, no problem. Let's go. And I knew where she wanted to go was open because it's open 24-7. It's a Circle K. That's where she said she wanted me to take her. <laughs> and so, so I took her. I got up. I got ready, and we went out, and we got over to this uh, uh, Circle K right about dawn. And then she picked out some donuts and some juice and I got a cup of coffee and we went out and we sat down on a curb on, on the side of the Circle K to have our little date there. And there's a dumpster over here, but we're fine. We're over here. Everything's fine. And, you know, everything's sitting here. And, 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 and I let her set the agenda. She wanted to talk about, she just wanted to talk about the Sleeping Beauty video she'd been watching over and over again. And she just yapping away about it. And I'm listening and asking. And finally I her, what's your favorite part of that? And she said, um, Dad, I love the part when the handsome prince and Sleeping Beauty dance together in the castle. And I don't know what provoked me to do it, but I decided to reenact that. I put everything back in the bag, lids on everything. I picked her up right there. Started singing that song. I know you. I waltzed with you once. And we were just singing this. Song. As I came around, there was a there was a, a lot just behind the thing and right across some new homes. And the fences, brand new, people occupied. And I could look up it. And there was a man sitting in his breakfast table looking out at me and and, 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 he's over and I thought he's stirring his coffee calling his wife right now looking honey quick quick look there's an idiot over to circle K <laughs> dancing with a little girl next to a dumpster <laughs> but another thought crossed my mind then in a very brief period of time some young man was going to come along and tap me on his shoulder and Mr. Kimmel may I cut in and waltz her out of my life for good Turned out his name was Ian. He's a wonderful guy, but he just showed up so soon. It went so fast. Listen, when it comes to parenting, I, let's be honest, the days are long, but the years are short. And so don't miss the chance. Seize that day and fill those years with grace. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Gateway Church, please visit our website at www.gatewayscottsdale.tv